Hey, welcome to today's episode. Don't forget to join us to chat about the podcast on Facebook. You can do that by searching for the group Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group and putting in a request to join. Today, I'm talking to Jean Dodds. Jean has been a veterinarian since 1964. She's the founder of the non-profit Hemopet, the first national animal blood bank, and the co-author of the canine thyroid epidemic, as well as canine nutrigenomics. So, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Well, hi, Jean. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks Thank so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You know, I was just saying to you before we were recording about the difference that the NutriScan stuff has made to our little dog. And I know that, you know, in researching, in preparation for this podcast, what struck me is how many different things you're involved in. You know, like there's the Hemopet stuff and, you know, all centered around canine health. But, you know, there's so many different things to look into. So that was really great to kind of find out a bit more about you. Good. Thank you. So... Usually, with the podcast, we start off a little bit slowly, but there's so much to cover and I have so many questions I want to ask, so I was hoping that we could just get straight into it. And I was wondering if you could maybe start off by explaining what hypothyroidism is for people that have never even heard of it. Okay. Well, one of the first questions people ask me was, why would you, as a hematologist and immunologist, get interested in the thyroid gland? And that explains actually why. And the reason is because the thyroid gland is one of the major master glands in the body that controls the metabolism of everything. It regulates metabolism. It controls protein synthesis and enzymes and organ function. So when it doesn't work properly, it's hypo, meaning low. Um, obviously, all these things can be disrupted. And so I realized that um, from a perspective of the blood and the immune system, if the thyroid was not working properly, then nor would the blood or the immune system. And so I thought, aha. So now I have to open my eyes and broaden it to um, a more holistic, with a W, perspective, looking at the whole body's function. And what that did, Nick, was it allowed me to come from a non um tunnel vision perspective of someone who was always looking at endocrinology and had their own vision, just like I could have tunnel vision as a hematologist. So by taking an open view, I could look at it. And interestingly, the dog and the cat are different. Um, The dog is like human hypothyroidism and particularly Hashimoto's disease, which is the heritable autoimmune form of thyroid destruction that so many people have. In the cat, we don't have hypothyroidism, except extremely rarely. We have the opposite. Cats are hyperthyroid, more like human Graves' disease. So if you put the dog and cat together, they equal a person. <laughs> in that, regard. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, well, sort of strange, but actually hyperthyroidism occurs in older cats. So the problem then is how do we diagnose hypothyroidism not at the end stage when everybody's been taught, every veterinarian's been taught to look for fat, lazy, and hates the cold. Well, okay. you know, the dog doesn't wake up tomorrow and say, I think I'm going to be hypothyroid today. 
it has to get to that point progressively over time. And that takes about a year to a year and a half, typically. And so we have to, as clinicians, be able to recognize early symptoms because we don't want the dog to progress to the point that it's fat, lazy, and hates the cold and starts becoming aggressive, biting people, anxious, phobic, whatever. That's not safe. And many animals tragically end up being euthanized because they have sudden aggression and they're attacking other dogs or people in the household or strangers. And especially if they're big dogs, and nobody then knows what's going on. I have a case like that right now in a three-year-old Leonberger, and the animal has autoimmune thyroid disease, but because it hadn't progressed to the stage where the basal thyroid levels were low, none of the veterinarians wanted to treat the dog because they said, if we treat it, it'll become even more active, more aggressive, and more hyperthyroid. That's incorrect. So we have to save this dog's life. And fortunately, this lady read about us on the internet, contacted me just yesterday and said, please help me so I don't have to euthanize my dog. This is not an uncommon scenario. In a large breed animal, they're unpredictable. So, so, so why do the vets... Sorry. So why do vets think that if you treat the hypothyroidism, that it will worsen the behavioral problems? Well, the problem is, is that the thyroid levels that are established by the commercial diagnostic labs are not based on the age or the breed type of the pet. There's just one large normal range. Well, we know that small dogs have a different metabolism to large dogs. You don't want a Newfoundland with the energy of a Yorkshire Terrier. That would be dangerous <laughs> for the dog as well so the problem is and young dogs have higher levels than adults because they're growing and old dogs have lower levels because they don't need the metabolic energy that they did when they were younger so this misdiagnosis is a major problem so that's the first issue how do you diagnose it properly given that you have to do age and breed specific interpretation which is what hemoplant does by the way our company is the only one that offers it automatically with no additional charge a professional age and breed specific interpretation based on 20 years of accumulated data so we can look at those things and we don't use radioisotopes for our diagnostics so we have patented non-radioisotopic technology so we're not harming the earth every time we do a test so that makes okay. us different um and how do we teach the general veterinarian to understand that when that's not what they're taught in veterinary schools or continuing education? It's basically not their fault. It's an educational void. And I've spent the last 25 years of my professional, 55 years of professional life, trying to teach veterinarians about the difference. Okay, so if if they came in with the Newfoundland that had, they they're basically viewing it on the wrong scale. Is that right? They're kind of like, they're comparing it to something that isn't true and then because because of that that's when they're not treating it correct so if you were to so, so why do they so uh, sorry i'm all this is my biology knowledge already falling through <laughs> so uh, what why does that make them think that it will worsen the aggression problems where where does that come from well um, it's been known since the 1930s in people from a man named Plowman that children with attention uh, hyperactivity um, disorder have thyroid problems. And most of those are corrected by giving thyroid hormone um, by the physicians that are aware of this syndrome. And so it started with the whole idea about the behavioral control coming from the pituitary gland to the thyroid gland. 
Now, back to the issue about aggression. Why aren't these animals, why do veterinarians believe they'll make them hyperactive by giving them thyroid hormone? Because they're looking at, the, like this Leonberger, for example, the levels for the total T4, which is affected by many other things too, were low, admittedly. The free T4, the biologically active fraction, which was measured, was at the lowest end of the normal range, the broad normal range. When the veterinarians saw that, they said, if we give this animal thyroid hormone, it's going to make him hyperactive, and he's already aggressive and hyperactive. The problem is the only way you can stop the production of the antibodies that are destroying the thyroid and the dog is to feedback inhibit it. So that the body thinks the thyroid gland's working perfectly and won't be stimulated anymore. But they don't understand that. Okay, so by treating the dog, you're saying that it will actually improve the dog's behavior, not make it worse. Right. Does not. Right. In this okay. case, it'll save the dog's life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and what causes this problem? Is it something that dogs are born with? Why do dogs develop it you know what where's it come from well first of all it's a heritable thing and the genetic predisposition for thyroid disease in animals is the same as it is in people it's associated with the genes of the major histocompatibility complex those are the genes that make you um, reject a transplanted organ from anybody other than a complete match or an identical twin so it's the same kind of genetics in people as it is in the dog, and it's already been defined. The genetics of it have been defined, in particular canine on chromosome 12, for example, in the dog, most of them. Uh, there is there, there are a couple of other breeds that have it on a different chromosome, but it's been well studied worldwide, and I'm uh, proud to be part of those studies and, and have contributed samples to that. Um, so it's a heritable basis, but the interesting thing, Nick, is 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, the typical age of onset of the fat, lazy, hates the cold is four to six years of age. Today, it's one and a half to three years of age. Why has wow. that happened? The environment, we've changed our environment. We've polluted the earth. We've depleted the ozone layer. So the genetic predisposition is triggered by environmental exposures, by toxins, by drugs, mm -hmm. by vaccines, by all the things that can affect the body's balance. That then makes the genetic predisposition be exposed. Why do vaccine adverse reactions occur? Only in genetically susceptible individuals. But they're occurring more and more because we're changing our environment. And we all know that, tragically, okay. sadly. So environmentally, if we want to prevent dogs from... Uh, suffering from this what can we do with our own dogs i mean obviously we're limited we can't repair the ozone layer on our on ourselves uh, on our own but what can we do to prevent our dogs from developing well, the first thing you want to do is you don't want to breed animals that are positive for the autoimmune form of thyroid disease because you couldn't produce more that's just just not acceptable but for all those animals that have a sluggish thyroid or whatever we can optimize their nutrition we can feed them fresh, dense variety of whole foods. Um, we can reduce the number of vaccines to only those that are essential by doing blood tests instead after they've been immunized when they're young. Um, decide when they have to be vaccinated, other than rabies, of course, as required legally. Um, we can avoid herbicides, pesticides. Look at the whole issue with glyphosate, Roundup. Look at what it's done to the earth. Look how these pesticides volatilize in the air, get into the water table, get spread throughout 
So you can have organic farming in one pasture. You can have a slaughterhouse, God forbid, I'm a vegetarian, on the other side, leaching stuff into the ground of the organic farmer who has no control over it. So there's a huge issue of what we need to do about being careful about polluting our earth and then making us stronger using supplements that promote healthy immune systems. Um, curcumin, turmeric, for example, um, healthy other aromatic herbs, um, coenzyme Q10, I'm just thinking of some off the top, um, coconut oil, the, um, whatever, you know, things that are with, safe to have that help us be stronger and healthier. With the genetic issue, is this in, tied into pedigree dogs as well? Is it? Does it make a difference if you've got a crossbreed or a pedigree dog? Does it matter what breed you've got? Is, is there anything to do with any of those kind of things? Well, it's more common in certain purebred breeds of dogs, correct. It's also common in the hybrids. And people are saying, well, we're making the, the, the hybrid you know, dogs that cost so much money, um, the Labradoodle, the, the Golden Doodle, the Schnoodle, the whatever, you know, the Cockapoo. Uh, they bring both sets of good genes and bad genes to the table. So you can have hybrid vigor, but more uh, inheritable problems, okay? But mixed breeds have this too. And when you actually look at the mixed breeds, they usually have in their mix a background of a breed that's at high risk. Right, yeah, cause especially because, uh, like you said, you know, the whole designer dog trend, right? Like people are breeding a lot of these dogs right. that already have problems like pugs and all of these, right. you know, dogs that are already suffering. So I guess it would make sense. And um, But I know from talking to other vets, like we had Emma Milne come on the podcast. She was talking about all the problems that, that people suffering with so many of these pedigree dogs. And I was just wondering if the inbreeding has any kind of a... Well, it's inbreeding, but we're talking more about line breeding. And the problem is that when you started a breed with a small number of dogs, look at the Doberman, look at the standard poodle, look at the English cocker and the American cocker that separated in the 1940s. You know, the American cocker much more prone to problems than the English because it's more common as a breed. Look at the Labrador Retriever, the most popular breed still in the country. Look at what's happened to the brachiocephalic breeds, the French bulldog. As you know, in the UK, and other countries now in Australia as well we're trying to prevent these animals from being bred and then they so unless they select them to make the noses longer because they have so many medical problems and the British Veterinary Association said we don't want to treat these dogs anymore because they're so abnormally formed anatomically because of our choice as people to make them that way because they're quote cute and they sure are cute but gosh you know, so we have all these issues with how we need to take these inbred breeds and then we line breed on the inbred. So they're tightly line bred and therefore inbred breeds that have a higher predisposition. Everybody knows that. But people are in denial, Nick. You have denial. And I tell people, denial is not just a river in Egypt. It's also a problem for people. <laughs> <laughs> So what can you do if you want to go out and buy a dog? Is there anything you can do to try to minimize the chances of getting a dog that's going to develop hypothyroidism? Well, of course, um, what we have to do is we have to educate. We have to teach the public how to recognize the early signs, like easy keeper, and I'm not overfeeding them. Honestly, Dr. Smith, I don't overfeed this dog, and it's gained 10 pounds in the last four months. 
or the hair coat is a little sticky uppy or loses some of the soft undercoat or a terrier coat doesn't have a terrier texture anymore. It, it becomes soft. You know, something is changing. So if we can, so that's why I like to teach both ends of the spectrum. So I teach the public to recognize the problem, go to their veterinarian, have it and, and tell them I'm paying for these tests, even you don't, even though you might not think it's necessary, I want you to check it. And of course the veterinarian will usually comply and do that. And then the problem is are they looking at the results age and breed wise and how do we treat it? Yes, we can treat it definitely. But we have to diagnose it properly. Then we have to know when to give the treatment, how much treatment to give, always twice a day, always away from food, which veterinarians are not taught. But they say, oh, put it in the food bowl because your aggressive dog might bite you if you try to put the pill in his mouth or her mouth. It's ridiculous. That drug binds to calcium and soy in foods. And people know that have hypothyroidism or hyper, either one, not to take the medicine with food. Veterinarians have said, oh, it doesn't matter. Animals are different. It's not the behavior of the species. It's the behavior of the drug. <laughs> and we have natural supplements you can do to help. We have um, glandular supplements that may help. All of these things are complicated. Yeah, well, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you because the major the majority of the people that listen to this show are involved in dog training in some way. We're constantly coming across dogs that have behavioral problems. And I'm wondering how we can be better at recognizing hyperthyroidism. Because some of the stuff, you know, when you talk about some of the s- symptoms, they're so wide ranging that I'm I'm not sure how you can, as someone that isn't a vet, as someone that isn't, you know, qualified to do that kind of thing, how you can recognize, okay, this dog, I think we need to check this out, um, as opposed to maybe a different case of... It's, a, it's actually quite easy if you remember that the first health check, animals should have health checkups regularly, annually, typically, um, when they're older, maybe even more often. That health checkup must include a total thyroid profile, not just a T4, which is basically useless because it's affected by everything else. And on a routine screen, it's done on an auto-analyzer with an antibody against human T4, which is not accurate in the dog for that, for that particular hormone. So you have to have a complete profile. And the trainers, and I speak with them all the time, I just did recently again, um, we need to have a complete profile. You can also tell sometimes like, by looking at the animal's face. Look at the face, and if you see a tragic expression or fearfulness or strangeness to the face, even a droopy face where it looks uneven, like one eye may be a little droopy, one side of the face may be droopier than the other, or you can have chronic ear problems or chronic urinary tract problems, chronic problems, chronic low-grade stuff. It could be anything else. You're right. But easy keeper, behavioral change, suddenly becoming phobic, you know, noise aversion, um, sight aversion. They see something flapping and they get panicked. Um, suddenly not recognizing or interacting with known family members or friends. They don't see them or they're standoffish. They've changed. Of course, it could be a recent vaccination or something else. But when you have the animal evaluated, you have a complete thyroid profile as part of that. That's the first thing that the behavioral trainers do. And it works because you rule it in and rule it out. It's actually a lower cost to do that up front than it is to futz around for a year or so, testing this, testing that, doing the CAT scan, doing an MRI. You spend a fortune when you could have ruled something in or out at the very beginning. 
And presumably, I know this kind of isn't really your area, but presumably if if the dog has a medical cause for the behavior, you can do all the training in the world. You're not going to make progress. Correct. Right, because it's a biological thing, yeah, right? Like, correct. So what you're advocating for then is that we just kind of, we test this regularly across the board. Right. We don't, it's not a case of, you know, it, well, it is a case of looking for the signs, but but we should be testing it regularly enough that it's, we're going to find it anyway. Yeah. You do, but yeah. you don't just do it once. People say, oh, my dog has autoimmune thyroid disease, but I'm told that both parents were tested and they were normal when they were two. Well, they could be abnormal at eight or ten. It progresses, you see. So <laughs> not impugning the motives of the people. I mean, denial is part of it. But also, it had to come from one or both parents. It had to, or else the parents aren't the parents. You know, it's, it can't fool around here. It doesn't just appear. Occasionally, spontaneously, a mutation can occur, but that is so unusual, especially in breeds that we know have a major problem with these diseases. One of the breeds I raised, the English Setter, has more problems with this condition than any other uh, breed. And yet, it's rarely tested for. And I got a longtime breeder contacting me just this week saying, What do we do about it, Gene? Why are they burying their head in the sand? I said it's called the ostrich syndrome. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a big problem with these some of the breed clubs as well. Don't you know not recognizing or, or like you said, burying their head in the sand, and it is difficult. You know, like you were talking about the flat face dogs, right? Like how many people are trying to raise awareness about that, and then there's you. I I know because I'm kind of. I'm not involved in it, but I, I follow enough of the groups and stuff that I see people just yeah. like fighting over it constantly. <laughs> it's very difficult for these people because if they're highly visible and they're winning uh, performance events, whatever kind, and one of their animals is abnormal, they don't want anybody to know because people would say, well, I'll never buy a dog from that kennel because they have X. Well, if they've told you they have X, honestly and candidly, said that animal's not in the breeding program anymore you should buy from them because they're telling you the truth yeah absolutely yeah and if they're testing and they're yeah, you know they're, they're doing, you know, that's the sort of stuff we also tell you if you have a positive animal you don't even tell your best friend until you decide how you're going to deal with it because if you tell your best friend everybody knows it's okay if you're okay with it but you have to be prepared for the backlash against you because the role of the rest of the breeders is to pull you down in some way, hopefully positive way, so that you, they can compete unequally. But, you know, it's a people problem. The animals uh, will breed because they do naturally, but we control that. So it's really a people problem. Yeah, what you said a minute ago as well reminded me that, you know, we do regular kind of health tests with people, don't we? You know, like if people get regularly tested for like prostate cancer, breast cancer, right. that kind of thing. But the only kind of regular thing that people tend to do with their dogs is they get the yearly vaccinations, which I know that you're not a big fan of. And I was wondering if we could kind of, or maybe this would be something that would replace a yearly vaccination from a veterinary perspective. I'm, I'm wondering what your... Um, I wonder if we can kind of dig a little bit deeper on the vaccination front, because I think when we start talking about vaccinations, people like me that like science, and I'm sure you as well, Gene, like we start worrying because we start thinking, oh, no, it's anti-vax, you know, it's, it's these people that don't ever want to vaccinate their children, the dogs, you know, it's, know. Just it's horrible. The, the whole thing crazy. is awful. And I've, I just did a national radio show um, about that very issue. Polarized views either side are not correct, clearly. And so when the people say, well, 
vaccines are safe and they don't cause autism and whatever. Well, the vaccine didn't cause the autism. The metals that were in it as adjuvants did, mercury and aluminum. And the recent studies have shown that infants, when they're given as newborns, hepatitis B vaccine at birth, receive 17 times more aluminum than they should receive in their lifetime for their size because the vaccine load is not changed for the size of the infant versus an adult. The recommendations, the world recommendations are give the vaccines a year preferably, but not before six or seven months to infants, or use adjuvants that are not metals. And they already know that they're some that work well, but nobody's doing it. So we need this push. This is not just for people, it's for animals, okay? So that's interesting because I didn't realize that you were involved with the people vaccine oh, stuff as well. I, I'm a comparative uh, medicine person. Okay. I deal with people what? I write in the human literature all the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let's dig into that a little bit. Let's dig into that a little bit then. Um, so that's interesting to hear your perspective on that because I didn't realize, realize about that. And f- f- for me, the anti-vax movement is very much, um, you know, it's a, like it wasn't one of the biggest world health organizations or something. They declared it as one of the biggest worries for humanity. People not getting their children vaccinated, just seeing these huge breakouts in like diseases that shouldn't otherwise be happening. So you, but you're not advocating that people don't get vaccinated. You're saying they should be vaccinated later. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the whole point is you have to vaccinate to immunize individuals, people and animals appropriately, not over vaccinate. Don't keep vaccinating for diseases that haven't been recognized clinically in the last decade, like infectious canine hepatitis in the dog. We've had no cases in North America for 15 years. Why is the combo wombo, we call it, have that in there automatically when documented science has shown when you combine distemper, parvo, and, and hepatitis, adenovirus, in the dog, you suppress the immune system for 10 days. And this is puppies now that are going to a new home, a new environment, new food, new people, new stresses, and we give them a vaccine that they don't need. But isn't the reason that we haven't had the disease for 15 years because people have been vaccinated? Well, sure. Some of these diseases have disappeared because we vaccinated. Absolutely. That's true. But there aren't any. Now, as my... Uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Ron Schultz, who's recently retired, said, but Gene, it's a serious disease. I said, no, one of my abusive puppies died of it when I was a veterinary student. I know. If the disease comes back again, we'll vaccinate. We're vaccinating for hepatitis, but later. Just like the kid situation. So you give distemper and parvo the crit- for the dog, the critically important vaccines, panleukopenia, which is a parvovirus, by the way, in the cat, at the appropriate stages, not too young, Properly immunized, immunized. And people don't understand. My dog was vaccinated, it's protected. No, it had to be immunized. You have to make sure that the vaccine actually took to make sure it's protected. Then you worry about hepatitis when they're, say, a year old. So you could, or you can give one of the kennel cough vaccines, Bordetella, intranasal or oral, oral preferably only. It cross protects against hepatitis. So if you give that to the puppies, say, at six months or five months or after the others, you're going to protect them against hepatitis. So we can do it safely as opposed to putting it in the combo wombo. Why do we have combo wombos? Because the public didn't want to keep coming back again. It was quicker just to put everything together. After all, it's safe, isn't it? Well, the adverse reaction rates in pets increase with the number of antigens you put together with the vaccine. That's true. Okay. I guess... 
I guess the alternate argument, though, is if people aren't going to vaccinate otherwise, then maybe it's, it makes more sense from a pro- productivity point of view to do it all at once and get, say, I don't know, like, I'm just making these numbers up, but say 75% of people vaccinate as opposed to try and do it in staggered and only get 50 or 40. But that's ridiculous. The, the knowledge today and the data today show it's unsafe to do that. And the adverse reaction rate is three to five per hundred vaccines. That's not small. I don't know if you think it's small. I don't. That's three to five percent. What was that? Three to five percent, you said? Of adverse reactions. Yeah. And some of them are not serious. You know, edema, yeah. um, vomiting, ADR, ain't doing right for a few days, yeah. sore muscles, whatever. But there's no reason if we educate. Now, mm-hmm. how can people be assured they're not going to be charged four times as much to come in more than once? Veterinarians, if they understand that, provide a packaged pr- product. This is Jones. Yeah, okay. Vaccines for your puppy are going to cost X for the whole series, yeah. done preferably separated, as we recommend. It's the same price if you give them all together, which we don't recommend. So you have to take so, a little extra time off work or whatever. Okay. This is a puppy's life you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. How's forever no, you're talking sense. about? Yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense. So really a lot of this comes down to timing then. It's more about when we when we vaccinate as opposed to whether we should or whether we shouldn't. Is that what you're saying? Oh, the timing. Excellent. What's happening? Breeders are vaccinating at four weeks of age because they want to be sure the puppies are protected. Unless the mother died and there was no antibodies in the colostrum, they never got it. That's ridiculous because the vaccine label tells you they're modified live now. We're talking about, we're not talking about babies. It says you shouldn't give it before six weeks of age because it can cause the disease within the vaccine because the puppy's not strong enough to withstand the amount of modified live attenuated product that's in there. You can't give it before six weeks and usually now we're waiting until eight or nine. Why? Because the mother's maternal immunity is going to neutralize the vaccine Anyway, so you're giving them fetal calcium, you're giving them or egg protein, or you're giving them tissue capsule, you're giving toxic tissue culture soup, not just what you think you're protecting against. Why would you do that to a young baby animal or a person? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. So what what do you recommend in terms of vaccinations? What is what does the ideal schedule yeah, look like? For the cat for the dog we recommend a standpoint parvo at nine to ten weeks, again at fourteen to sixteen weeks. And then rabies as late as possible, according to the law, when you live, not given at the same time. And many people give it together with the last, just like a carbo, combo, schwambo, whatever, okay? I say this, I, I say combo, schwambo, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, but I'm trying to get the point across. This is a mm-hmm. serious issue. Mm-hmm. For the cat, we do panicopenia primarily. Uh, rabies, of course, you have to do by law, as late as possible. We do panicopenia in the cat, and they mature a little bit earlier, so we can do 8 and 14 weeks to 8 and 12 in the cat. Um, mm-hmm. Some people use, um, for the dog, we'll do 9 and 12, and then another one at 16. 3 would be okay. But the package insert says 9 and 12 is enough. Our vaccine protects it after that. That's not true. With today's maternal immune levels that the mothers have, the antibodies in the mother that transfers to the babies will be there for 14 to 16 weeks. We've got to wait to give the last one. Okay. Okay. So what about adult dogs? Are we vaccinating them? We don't need to vaccinate them at all. What we do, a year after you've done dogs and cats, like I suggested, a year later, which would be, what, a year, four months or whatever, you do a serum antibody test. It's called a titer test, a vaccine titer test, to see if they've been immunized. 
If they've been immunized and they have antibodies, any level is fine. It doesn't have to be a certain level, despite what the labs might tell you. You know, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. So you either have the antibodies or you don't. Doesn't matter how much it is, because underneath the serum antibodies is the cell cellular immunity, okay, which is simulated automatically. So you do that. If it's okay, you don't have to do it. And the recommendations now you retest every three years. So at 14 months it is okay. Three years later you do another serum test. If it's not okay at 14 months, you give one more booster. You wait at least three to four weeks and you redo the titer to make sure it took. Now, if you've done that and it didn't take, and that would typically be against parvo, not distemper, say you didn't have an immunity, giving another brand doesn't help. That means the animal's a genetic non-responder. It's rare, but it occurs. Labradors, for example. They'll never respond. Never respond to parvo vaccine. They'll be susceptible to parvovirus disease their whole life. Really? I didn't know yes, that. Yes, Labradors non-responders. Labradors, Akitas, Harlequin Great Danes, Weimaraners, Greyhounds. Do vets still do vets still give the Parvo vaccine to these dogs? They, they'll never produce immunity. They can't. Because I'm pretty sure that I I'm pretty sure that my Labrador had a Parvo vaccine. I might be wrong on that. It, it, it would that would have been just been useless. Then. As long as you no, as long as you test the animal after the vaccine, which would be at least three weeks afterwards, not before then. Okay. If it's got an antibody level, any level, your animal's good. It responds. It's immunized. And for three, actually three, three in the dog, one in the cat, distemper, parvo, hepatitis in the dog, and panmucopenia in the cat. If you have an antibody level. The animal is protected, cannot be reinfected. Protected for life, basically. Cannot receive okay. uh, infection again. So it doesn't need but to be with, vaccinated. With those breeds you mentioned, like Labradors, Akitas and stuff, are you saying there's no point in giving them the Parvo vaccine because they just won't respond to it? Well, no, you, don't, you have to check it. And within the Labrador Retriever breed, and they're usually black Labradors, there's a, there are families that never produce antibodies to Parvo. Okay, so it's not all hounds, for example, would be the same thing. But the non-responder rate um, is one in 1,000 dogs for Parvo, one in 5,000 for distemper, uh, we don't know for hepatitis. There's no good data. And cats, very recently, they said it was one to 100,000 for panicopenia. So it's much less common to be genetically a non-responder in a cat than it is in a dog. One to 1,000 for parvo, one to 5,000 for distemper. Okay, so how often should you do the TETA tests? And can you do the um, canine hyperthyroidism tests at the same time? Yes, we do. We can do it at the same time. But remember, you don't have to do titer tests every year after the first one. We need to check the thyroid every year with a general wellness exam. And okay. when clients come to our referral holistic clinic, for example, we, like yesterday, we looked at them and said, oh, you had your jumper parvotitis done last year. They're not done. We need them for another two years. Okay. When they, oh, okay. So it's every three years. Then, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Every three years you do it. Because the vaccines are for three years now. That's why the veterinarian understands the three-year point. Most vaccines are now have a longevity of three years. That's what it says on the label. They are given three-year vaccines. Oh, that's interesting because I know for a long time it was 
the whole yearly vaccine thing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all the time, all the time. But now when the animals are older, Nick, you don't have to do a titer. After age 10, for example. So we had um, four dogs come yesterday for their annual checkups, and three of them were 10 years of age. He said, we're not going to do titers anymore. You want to pay me? I'll do them. Because we're not vaccinated. We're all dogs. We've had titers before. They're immunized. Forget it already. So why are so many vets still doing yearly vaccinations or over-vaccinations, as you would say? Um, why are they still doing this? It's an, it, no, it's an easy answer. And I've had the same question asked me when I taught in Israel and Serbia and Denmark and the UK recently, um, because they're afraid they out, the people won't come in and they won't have any clients. So you send them a reminder Fifi is due for her annual wellness exam and vaccine update. The update doesn't mean you're giving a vaccine. It means you're going to discuss the situation and determine, do they need a vaccine now? Do they need a blood test instead? What do we recommend? So they're still coming in. The client's still getting the reminder. They're still coming in for everything. And also, veterinarians should remember, they make more money doing titers than they do giving a vaccine. And it's safer. And so clients will respect that. You can tell them sincerely, Mrs. Smith, this will cost you a little bit more than the vaccine, about double. But in fact, it's better for your pet. And that's what we're both interested in. People will accept that. They understand. Well, I think, I mean, I'm not in the business, but I would imagine that it's a huge um, draw at the moment because more and more the conversation is... Right. happening right about vaccination you have people that veterinarians for example in manhattan that don't do titers and they said well let me check and see what it costs oh it costs 500 dollars. that's total bologna sausage you know somewhere between 50 and 75 dollars to do distemper and parvo in the dog both mm-hmm. both of them you know we charge 52 okay. for example but we're a non-profit so maybe the company charges twice as much it's still an affordable amount when you're looking at the safety of the pet I don't know if it differs which vaccinations you do in the US and the UK, but over here we have like kennel cough and leptospirosis. What about those vaccinations? What are your views on those? We vaccinate those, but the problem with leptospirosis is there are seven serious clinical serovirus strains of the 200 that exist, and the vaccines only contain four. So what you have to find out in the UK, for example, would be what strains of leptospirosis are clinically reported in dogs and people, and then if it's one of the four that's in the vaccines, then you would give it. I understand. That's good. Um, just remember that vaccine, um, the whole issue of vaccinations is on the forefront in the UK with the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, the British Veterinary Association, and people like Dr. Michael Bay, who's just absolutely wonderful. And he teaches that vaccination is an individualized procedure. This is individual medicine. Not all vaccines are safe, not all vaccines are needed, and not all vaccines are are appropriate to give. So Mm -hmm. he's exactly right. Okay. I feel like we've got the dog part sorted now on the vaccinations. <laughs> I feel like we've got to the end of that. What were you saying about children? Because we we quickly went back to dogs, and you were you were talking about um, the vaccinations with with children and the link with autism, and I'm really curious about that. Okay. Um... The same thing occurs in children that occurs in animals, that the immune system can be dysfunctional or damaged by 
certain vaccines given too young or because of the contents of the vaccine. That was the issue with the aluminum and the hepatitis B vaccine of the infants. And what they're recommending as a world um, effort is to replace the current metal adjuvants, which are thimerosal mercury, aluminum, nickel, and chromium, with calcium phosphate or zinc which are safe as adjuvants, adjuvants needed in pill vaccines to boost the immune response to it. And they're also okay. saying that these infants are too small, they have to be older, and that they should be adjusting the dose based on the size. Now, we already know in the dog, for example, from the studies we published in 2015, that breeds that are no more than 12 pounds, six, or five, six kilo, when they're adults, only need half a dose of distemper parvo to immunize them, immunize them. Mm -hmm. Now, rabies, we can't change by law. We have to give the four pound and the 200 pound dog the same dose by law in North America, probably everywhere. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So we know that certain vaccines can be reduced in amount for small breeds. Because they don't need the, the mass, okay? That, that seems like common sense. That makes a, right. that makes a lot of right. sense. So the point is, with infants, the same question is now being raised. Why aren't you, that's why we should give it to the children when they're older. What do you do in the third world when those poor people don't even have food and safe water, never mind how to vaccinate their children when they live in villages and have to travel, you know, hours and hours and hours to come to a vaccine clinic when their babies are going to be over vaccinated? What do you, and if they, otherwise you don't see them again either, what do you do? Uh -huh. You know, they found well, that, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna ask you. Well, what is your recommendation for people with children? I would give. Well, you can't change the dose by law unless you're optional. You need to discuss it with the physician or naturopath or physician. Um, I would give it later. I would give infants the vaccines later, definitely. Uh -huh. Right. That's an important clarification, I think, because I think that some people are going to hear, you know, you're talking about vaccines, and they're going to instantly label you as someone that is anti-vaccines. I'm not. Not at all. Yeah. I'm pro-vaccines done appropriately for the situation at hand on an individual basis. Okay, this is not just everybody's the same. We're not. We're individuals. And that's what we're teaching. It's personalized medicine for people. It's individualized medicine for animals. That, that makes a lot of sense. Let's go down the next rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um you mentioned nutrition as being one of those factors which can or have an effect on hyperthyroidism correct what's what's recommendation there what's going on in the world of nutrition well there's a whole bunch of of uh, vitamins and minerals and foods that are essential for normal thyroid function. And one of the things we forget about would be selenium, vitamin E, and zinc, for example. Those have to be in the right amounts uh, in the food uh, to protect the health of the thyroid gland. We want to avoid goitrogenic foods. Goitrogenic foods are those that affect the thyroid gland adversely. For example, millet, the grain, is a goitrogen. Okay. We want to avoid things that can affect the thyroid gland, like soy, mm -hmm. certain kinds of soy, not all soy. And we definitely want to avoid glutens. No glutens. That's the problem. Yes, we feed whole grains, but not glutens. No wheat, no barley, no rye, no oats unless they're labeled gluten-free, no spelt, no kenut, no faro, F-A-R-R-O, no couscous. Now, I have a family with um, a, a dog right now that I've been told they shouldn't eat any glutens, and she said, couscous? My husband has Hashimoto's disease, and he eats couscous. I said, oh, my God. He doesn't know that. Sorry. <laughs> I, 
I do it myself, so I, I know exactly. So no wheat, barley, rye, oats, and less labeled gluten-free. No spelt, no camel, no fire, no couscous. So should people be looking for like a grain-free dog food? Yes. Now, there's a whole question about, by the way, the, the hysteria, mass hysteria about grain-free foods, boutique diets, and dilated cardiomyopathy is definitely incorrect. Okay? okay. What do you, really you mean by the hysteria? Thank you, Brian. What do you mean by the hysteria? Well, the whole there's been a whole hysteria worldwide because of some material that was issued last summer by the US FDA saying there was a potential link between canine heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, and the use of boutique foods, grain-free, raw, homemade, etc. Which primarily was promoted by the large pet food industry people that fund the research involved. Let's leave it at that. So the FDA. <laughs> said that, well, come on, hey, this is you would expect them to do that. That's their job, okay? You just have to. Right? No, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So okay. The I'm FDA with you. Said potential <laughs> link. Everybody went berserk and said there was a link. In February this year, the FDA countered their thing, saying that was premature. They now do not know what's causing the increase in canine heart disease, especially in certain breeds like the Golden Retriever. There's a genetic predisposition, likely. But the other factors we don't understand, and I've currently just written a major paper that's under review on 523 Golden Retrievers fed all kinds of diets, and there was no difference. They were healthy. They did not get heart disease. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's but, but, but the problem is getting it published because it's being reviewed by the people that really, really believe, the cardiologists primarily, that there's a problem, you know. Hmm. So forget it. You know, we, okay. it's not okay, true. Okay, so. Okay, so we're going for grain free. Now, you mentioned a few different things there. I mean, there's all these debates about home cooked versus raw versus commercial. Do you have a preference? Do you think it matters again on the individual dog? I mean, what's, right. your, what's sure. your opinion there? Freshly balanced raw food is the most nutritious, in my opinion, as long as it's safely prepared, whether it's be commercially raw or whether it's been homemade raw, as long as it's safe. Now, don't tell me that people don't know that, Cereal kibbles contain just as many bacteria as raw foods. You could culture salmonella from kibble in a heartbeat. Okay? Nobody's worried about that. So the point is it has to be safe. It has to be properly prepared. So raw is good. What would be the next one? Would be home prepared or, or commercially prepared, lightly cooked foods. Okay? And way down the list would be the commercial cereal kibbles. You know, your canned foods are better. You know, so that we have to look at the whole industry. I believe raw diets are the freshest, safest for pets. If they're balanced, they're safe and properly prepared. Why is raw better than cooked? Well, because it's going to be safer because the proteins are not being denatured and broken down by the cooking process, right? So it's a matter of safety then? It's as a safety, well, no, it's wholesomeness, right? And the food should be human-grade, not dairy and diseased animals that have been thrown by the wayside, God forbid, right? It had to be human-grade right. foods. Uh-huh. For meats, they should be grass-fed rather than grain-fed. Why? Uh-huh. Because so the animals should be not eating wheat, for example, or corn, uh-huh. and the meat they're feeding has been fed on corn and wheat, and the residues are in the fresh. 
So if you want to avoid that potential issue, you have to take meats that are grass-fed or poultry that's grass-fed. And sometimes in the year you can't do that. Like lamb, for example, would be cereal-fed, you know, on, on um, those kinds of grains in the wintertime if it's cold. They may be grass-fed in the summertime. So grass-fed meats and poultry are going to be better because you don't know what's in the flesh. It's always made a lot of sense to me that um, you know, homemade foods and a lot of the raw stuff is going to be superior to the commercial stuff just based on the quality of the ingredients, right? Like Correct. it just seems like the ingredients that are put into those foods oh. are far, far superior. Where, where I get a little bit confused is why raw, why the food is better raw than it is cooked. Because when it's cooked, you open the protein. The, um, you expose more antigenic sites, right? Because the protein is unfolded. So it's not the way it is in the raw state. Mm-hmm. And remember, think about wolves in the wild, right? They've adapted as be urbanized uh, to eat more cereal grains. And they've actually have, there's three genes different between the dog and the wolf. Uh, because the wolf changed to be able to digest starch. And so the domestic dog now can digest starch as it evolved from the wolf because of this change in the genome. That was work published in Scandinavia some years ago. Very nicely done, by the way. So, yes, raw diets are less altered mm-hmm. than cooked. But remember, home-prepared diets may not be balanced because the biggest issue, and I agree with that, is some people don't know what they're doing because they're not trained to know how to balance it nutritionally. So we need to get advice from an animal nutritionist or a veterinary nutritionist or from the many books that are out now that are well prepared by qualified people giving them recipes what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're going about it on their own and they are trying to make their own raw food well i think the biggest mistake people make is they be they follow the the, the barf concept bones and raw and they give too much meat they're going to feed 70 to 80 percent meat realizing that the dog is not an obligate carnivore anymore like the cat the cat remains a carnivore the dog is an obligate omnivore so it needs some vegetables and fruit and other roughage in addition to the meat so we say feed 30 to 50 percent meat add vegetables berries whatever else you need to balance it um you know the tri- for example is great you know put in these other things so that's the biggest problem i have is and then people are going to be making their own raw foods they have the chicken the raw chickens developed to their back porch and they sit in the sun all day and they come home and then prepare them duh does that make any sense no you know what i mean i mean it's common sense right so the other thing is how do you make sure that your raw um, meat for example is safe you can make patties you can put them in aliquots of one day or two days or whatever and freeze them. Mm-hmm. Before you freeze them, you dunk them in grape seed extract or grapefruit seed extract to, to inactivate any bacteria on the outside and freeze them. Mm-hmm. Then take them out and, and use that for one day or two days or whatever. And that way the food is as fresh as when you bought it in terms of the bacterial content or parasite content or whatever is in there. But you said as long as people are kind of following... Um, some kind of guidelines then the, the the you can do the homemade thing you know that is a possible thing to do because i think that's yeah because yeah. i think that some people hear homemade and they get worried for the reasons you you said earlier about you know are people going to be able to balance it themselves 
Well, they can if they follow the recipe, either from any of the books or online, or ask an expert to help. It's well, that's, that's the thing, though, Gene, isn't it? Because like, so there's so many different opinions that, I mean, who do you know? How do you know who to follow? You know, like you could come across one of those pages you just said was bad with people that are f- feeding just You meat. have to look at the credentials of the people that have written them. That's all. For example, people write to me all the time about that. And I consider myself, even though I don't have a degree, and by the way, I don't have any specialty degrees because I was a veterinarian before they, any of these colleges existed. So, <laughs> but, I, but I am considered a nutritional expert, and we have a best-selling book about nutrigenomics and canine nutrigenomics. Um, my co-author, Diana Lavardier, and I, that's a best-selling book, you know, just like the canine thyroid epidemic was a best-selling book uh, as well. So we've written books for the public with all the science and references in them, cited so they know that our opinions are based on scientific fact Mm -hmm. what's your opinion on some of the more kind of niche trendy diets like i you know i know some people that feed their dogs vegan food you know what's your opinion on that kind of thing well there's a whole issue about whether animals can eat vegan diets and whatever, whether they're balanced properly. They can be, but it's tricky, okay? And yes, they can be. And an all-vegan-based diet is po- possible to balance properly for the dog. The cat, I'm not so sure of. Um, but you've got, you've got exotic, you've got alligator, you've got pheasant, you've got emu, you've got kangaroo, you've got you name it. So the boutique pet food field has been inundated with all these specialty uh, meats and other reptiles and whatever. I mean, you can go on a website like exoticmeats.com and you can buy Ryan. You can buy whatever you want. You know, is that, I is think that a good thing? That seems like a good thing, like on the face of it with like getting more variety in the dog's diet. Yeah, you need to rotate and transition, but you don't do it every few days. We have clients that have, they feed beef for two days, then pork, then rabbit, then whatever. That's ridiculous. The body hasn't got a chance to adjust to whatever the protein is. Really? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's too often. You need to do it gradually. You need to feed a protein for ideally three to four weeks or, or six weeks, then rotate. So you transition foods and you rotate the diet. And what you do by rotation, Nick, is the animal develops tolerance to those proteins. That's the interesting because I've, I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen more and more recently there being a push for like feeding dogs a huge variety of different things and almost letting the dog kind of self-select or that kind of thing, you know, where you're letting the dog just kind of eat what it wants to eat. Is that kind of not a good idea from that perspective? Well, you could do that. But if you want to feed a variety of meats, you can put them all together. So you could do, you know, some lamb, some goat, some beef, some whatever, um, with a fish all put together. But but uh, you, if you're going to develop tolerance, which is what the issue really is, you need to have the body adjust to that protein. Because it's going to be different. It's got different fat content, different um, amino acids, different whatevers. And so you adjust it to that. And so we find the most, the, the animals that thrive the most are those that eat rotational diets every three to four weeks you change the protein source. Okay, what problems come when you are rotating the meats a lot? You know, like every couple of days? Well, you see all kinds of problems with guts, with itching, scratching. Scratching and itching are the primary thing. You sometimes get intermittent diarrhea. You get a lot of gas formation. So we tell people, when your animal's lying down, put your ear to the belly. And if you hear bloop, 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 
Forget it. It's not good. And he said, well, I can't change the diet, Jane, because the gas that comes out, you know, clears the room. I said, and you tell me that humans don't have the same problem? Come on. Oh, so you're saying that people should eat the same meat. Well, so. yeah, if the gas is coming out, obviously the animals, something may not be completely balanced. But the point is, don't be turned off if there's gas if the animal's thriving, okay? Because yeah. we do the same thing. It could yeah. be one particular meat source gives more gas than another. So you don't use that one anymore. I mean, again, use common sense, right? Right. Okay, so we should, <laughs> so we should have, be feeding our dogs raw then, and rotate the meats every three to four weeks right that's what we should be doing from a nutrition perspective <laughs> i know this, this might sound controversial but it really isn't you know the concept of rotation and transitioning was developed years and years ago 20 30 years ago we didn't talk about it um, what about like vegetables and fruits what about vegetables and fruits can they be changed daily or does it have to be the same kind of thing no no, as in, no, as in the, the, you should rotate them every three or four weeks, or you can just change that constantly? No, you should. You should rotate them. You shouldn't just feed the same one forever. No, you shouldn't. I mean, oh, well, my animal's been eating your liver cleansing diet, Dr. Dodds, for a year, and he loves it, and his liver is better, and they told me to put him to sleep, and now he's bouncing around and healthy. He doesn't like it anymore. So I said change the fish source to putting in um, a low-fat, you know, alternate meat, uh, like turkey, which is high in tryptophan and calming, you know, um, try pork, not ham, not processed, not ham or bacon, you know, try I mean, rabbit. I guess I, I guess I mean, like, can I feed my dog broccoli with his raw one day and then sprouts the next day? Or should I just be keeping him on vegetables for on the same vegetable source for three or four weeks and then rotating it like I do with the meats? Correct. Correct. The same food and vegetables can keep being in. And remember, no strawberries for dogs, right? Okay, no, I didn't know that one. Well, because when people have a strawberry, if you cut it in half lengthwise, you see the white and the little green top that you're trying to remove when you hollow a strawberry? Uh That part is toxic. So if you want to feed a strawberry, you should only feed the very bottom half and throw the rest away. Well, it's better to feed a wild strawberry or no strawberries. But pomegranates, raspberries, um, blueberries, excellent source of antioxidants. Is that, Chia is that seeds, true for people as well? Because I, I eat strawberries all the time. <laughs> now I'm getting worried. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's not toxic for people. But that part that you haul, if it's not hauled completely, can be toxic for a dog. Really? That's an interesting one. I haven't heard of that yeah, before. And don't forget that if we give dogs peanut butter, if they're not sensitive to peanuts or peanut butter, that some of the peanut butters have xylitol in them, that sweetener that's toxic for dogs, as you know. And garlic is only in moderation for a dog. Too much garlic is not safe either. What's your opinion on like um, adding in nuts and that kind of thing? Because I know that that's gaining in popularity recently. Nuts to you. Yes, absolutely. You have to be careful. Macadamia nuts, no, no, no. Walnuts, because they can be moldy. Um, cashew nuts, they're too fatty. Brazil nuts can be moldy, okay? So primarily we do um, walnuts that aren't um, don't moldy, right? Peanuts, if they're okay. Uh, pistachios usually are okay, but definitely not macadamia. Definitely not. Really, because of the issues with mold? They're, they're uh, no, macadamia is toxic. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Others are often moldy, so they have to be very careful. You can go, anybody can go online, put into Dr. Google, safe and unsafe nuts for dogs, and I'll tell you. And 
How can you make sure that you get nuts that Hazel aren't moldy? Hazelnuts are okay. Hazelnuts are okay. Okay. How can Sorry? you make sure that you're getting nuts that aren't moldy? You smell them, my dear. Okay. <laughs> well, you made... can. You know, when you open the bag, you can get the odor. It's just like when you open a bag of pet food that's rancid or moldy, you can smell it right away. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, you just... That's simple as that. You can smell yeasty, right? Right, right. Well, where can people find out more about you, Jean? About us? About all the stuff that you're doing. We've only covered a, a fraction of it. Right. So where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Some of the stuff okay, we've fine. mentioned. Our website is hemopet.org, H-E-M-O-P-E-T.org. Our new test that we've talked about is called Cell Bio. B-I-O, capitalized, one word. And the website is H-T-T-P-S, cellbiomarkers.org. Can you just just quickly explain what that is as well? Because I know that we we said we would cover it. Okay. Well, CellBio is combined with NutriScan. NutriScan is our salivary test for food intolerance. Uh, It's been around, patented for some years now. It's used worldwide. It's very successful on identifying the foods that pets should not eat among 24 commonly used foods. With that goes CellBio, and CellBio is now looking at a particular um, marker in the blood, but we're using it in saliva, so pet owners can do it with saliva rather than having a blood collection, which is a big thing. So with NutriScan in saliva, now CellBio in saliva, they identify the markers that measure inflammation, infection, obesity, and cancers. It's a predictive test to tell you whether your animal is developing any of those issues, and if your animal already is ill with one of them, it will also show very high levels. What do we do after that? We change the diet, we change the supplements to bring the biomarker level down to protect the health of the pet from inflammation, from infection, from obesity, and from cancers. It's amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jean, and sharing so much information with us. I think that this is a little bit out of a lot of our realms, I think. I know it's out of my realm because, you know, we're constantly talking about dog training and obsessing over dog training. So it's really exciting to talk about a different field. And there's just so much crossover, right? Like we're talking about behavior and how important this is that we actually have an understanding of this because we're going to be facing dogs that potentially have these issues um, all the time. Great. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. As always, if you want to grab the show notes, then you can do that by heading over to nickbenger.com slash gene hyphen dots. It would also be hugely appreciated if you would take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you're using to listen to this podcast. So thanks so much in advance for that. See ya.